Palm Sunday celebrates the Sunday before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And what happened that was important on that day was Jesus mounted uh, the colt of a donkey and rode in through the gates of Jerusalem, then up the hill, and then went into the temple of God. And in so doing, he fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy declaring himself to be the promised Messiah King of Israel. That's the significance of that event. He was declaring publicly, I am the Messiah you were waiting for. I am the King that you were waiting for. The time of teaching we're about to have comes from Psalm 24, where we learn about the King of the universe, who we now know is Jesus Christ. If you got a Bible, open it up to Psalm 24. I'm going to read it here for you. This is a Psalm of David. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So King David wrote those words. We aren't certain when, but probably it sounds like when he brought the Ark of the Covenant in which God's presence rested into Jerusalem. He had won it back in a battle and he brought it into Jerusalem. They probably wrote this as a procession to bring the thing in and celebrate that day when God's presence was entering into his temple. Now that's the original story of it, right? Uh, But we're looking at it on Palm Sunday. Why is that important? Why would it fit in for Palm Sunday? Well, uh, as I said a moment ago, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem that day, he was declaring himself to be not just the king of Israel, uh, but the son of David, the true promised son of David, right? You could say the sequel to David almost, uh, and at the same time, the king of all creation. So in Psalm 24, what you have is sort of a prequel to Palm Sunday. It's King David coming in and the presence of the Lord coming in. Well, on the actual Palm Sunday, you have King Jesus coming in and in the same person, the presence of the Lord coming into Jerusalem. So what we're going to do is we're going to look through Psalm 24 and ask, what does this teach us about King Jesus? Let's look together first at verses 1 through 2. Verses 1 and 2 say, very simply, that King Jesus owns everything, including you and I. Uh, Let me read it to you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, 
the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So this is saying then that the Lord, Yahweh, whoever he may be, he made everything and therefore owns everything. Uh, that means that the Lord God in heaven uh, made the grass on your lawn. Uh, and he made your car, and he made your house, and he made everything, he made your body. He owns everything that you have ever owned or come across. Uh, and because he made you, he owns you and your body as well. Uh, now, the New Testament teaches that the Lord is Jesus Christ. And so what we learn about Jesus from this is that the one who made everything and made you and therefore owns everything and therefore owns you uh, his name is Jesus Christ. He is that king who came into Jerusalem that day. He owns even you and I. That means something rather profound for our lives. Uh, people ask all the time, uh, why can't I just do whatever I want with my body? Uh, the reason you can't do whatever you want with your body is that you don't own your body. As verse 2 says, uh, the Lord founded the earth upon the rivers and established it upon the seas. Uh, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, and the world, and here it is, those who dwell therein. You, by dwelling in this world, your body belongs to him. That is why we can't do whatever we want with our bodies. That's, that's what 1 and 2 teach us, that Jesus Christ owns everything, including you and I, and that is why we cannot do whatever we want. Now, that is good news. That is blessed news. In fact, there is an old catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the, the very first question of it is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, which is so fitting for times like right now, the answer is my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is good news right now. If you fear for your body, if you fear for your safety and your future, good news, you're not your own. Uh, you belong to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you won't turn and come to him, you still belong to him. There's time where you can turn. You can return to him, come back to him, and belong not just to the king of the universe, but the faithful savior who saves you. So turn back, come to him, and, and repeat the good news of us that we belong to a good God who has purchased us and loves us. That's what 1 and 2 teach us. Uh, so we look to verses 3 through 6. Uh, we see what kind of person can enter into God's temple and worship him. Uh, verses 3 through 6 are kind of a, a temple liturgy. Different parts are spoken by different people in these liturgies. Uh, verse 3 is what the worshipers coming into the temple ask. They ask the priests at the door, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? So the question is, what kind of person can go in the temple and worship God? Verse 4 begins the priest's answer. Here is the kind of person who can worship God. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, 
and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the people ask that question, who can ascend? The priests give this as an answer. So the criteria, if you want to come into God's presence and his place and worship him, uh, the criteria is perfect righteousness. The only kind of people who are worthy to have a connection with God and worship him in splendor and joy and not instead be afraid of him are people who have perfect righteousness. Now that was designed to point the people to the fact that they had to bring a sacrifice with them to atone for their sins. If there was a sacrifice that died in their place, then they could say, well, we are righteous. We have been made righteous before God. And so then they could respond with verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Uh, difficult to understand, but it basically means we are those kind of people. Like, that's us, right? So the people ask, who can go in? The priests say, only perfectly righteous people. And the people are able to answer, okay, that's us. We, such are the people who seek him right now. The people that seek the face of God are righteous. The only reason they could say that, though, is not because they had earned righteousness, but because they had brought sacrifices to pay for their sins, and they were given righteousness by God. Now, that teaches us quite a lot about Jesus, because there he is, the one entering the temple, and as you read the story, what you find out is that he actually cleans out the temple and kicks a number of people out and brings the blind and the lame in, and all this awesome stuff happens. But what this shows us is that there's actually only one person who meets the criteria to go into the temple. So here he is, the God that we are going to worship, and at the same time, the only person who is allowed to go in as a worshiper as well. The only one who can be there is Jesus himself. And so the question we've got to ask is, you know, we are not righteous before God. If we read verse 4, clean hands and a pure heart, not lifting up his soul to what is false, not swearing deceitfully, that doesn't describe my life. And that doesn't describe your life either. And so, how can I go into God's presence and worship him? How can you go into God's presence and worship him? Well, this temple liturgy, this psalm, was designed to point Israel to the fact that they needed a sacrifice, right? You can't come in here unless you brought a sacrifice with you. Well, we bring a sacrifice with us, too. And it's so neat that like everything winds up pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament. He is also the sacrifice that we must bring. He chose willingly to offer his own life as payment for our sins. Later that week, on the Friday of that week, he would willingly die on a Roman cross. And he would do that to offer payment for our sins, the payment of those who trust him. And will say, let Jesus stand in my place as a sacrifice who died in my place to pay for my sins. 
we receive that blessing by faith, by trusting in him. And as we do, then we can read verse 5, we will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. You trust in Jesus Christ. Let his payment count as payment for your sins. His death count as payment for your sins. And you receive blessing and righteousness from the Lord. This means also that not only does he pay for your sins, but you get credited for his goodness and righteousness. It's not just that he did not sin on earth, but he also did many good things in obedience to his Father, earning great reward for himself, earning a great standing of righteousness before his Father. And one of the blessings that Christians get as we trust in Jesus, is the credit for that righteousness is extended to us. We receive the blessing and reward that he earned for his righteousness. And we even get the status of righteous one before God who can go into God's holy presence and worship him. We receive that because Jesus earned it for us. This reminds me of a recent time when my family and I were traveling and we stayed in a hotel. And one kind of interesting thing about our family is that Emily's father works a traveling job and three or four nights a week he stays in a hotel and his employer pays for it. And uh, as you might imagine, he racks up all kinds of hotel points, uh, staying in these hotels three or four nights every week, you know, a few hundred nights out of the year, just earning points. And so when he decides he wants to stay in a hotel for fun, he's got this great pool of rewards points to pull from and to stay for free. Uh, Not only that, but because he's got so many of these points, you know, they give you these like elite member status. And in one big chain, he's like, I think it's called a diamond elite member or something like that. So when he stays, he gets like the royal treatment, uh, treated like a really important person because he's giving them so much business, right? Well, he's very generous. And sometimes when Emily and I travel, he will call and book a hotel room for us using his own hotel points. Uh, And when that happens, the reservation's in his name. And uh, when we go in, uh, the hotel, hotel, everything's all free, right? We get to stay in this hotel for free, uh, paid for with his points. But not only that, because he has this great high status in these hotel chains as this, you know, diamond elite member, we walk in as, you know, nobody's. And we get treated like we're, you know, fancy diamond elite members at these hotels. Uh, We get treated like we have that kind of status. Even though we've never earned it, we're cheap people who don't pay for hotel rooms. But when we go stay under his name, all of a sudden we're getting free bottles of water and free cookies and free breakfast in the morning and room upgrades. And it's like we're royalty in this hotel, even though we didn't earn it, right? We get that status because somebody else earned it for us. Uh, When a Christian comes to worship God, we get, by faith, the status of holy, righteous son before God. We get the opportunity to worship, the privilege of worshiping him. And we didn't earn that status. Somebody else earned that status for us. Jesus Christ earned it for us. And so we're able to say, verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, 
who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So verses 4 through 6 then tell us the kind of person who can enter into the temple and worship God. There is a real temple in heaven which we will get to enter one day because we have been given the status of a perfectly righteous person because of what Jesus has done for us. Verses 7 through 10 tell us the kind of things that worshipers like us say to this King of Heaven, to Jesus Christ. It says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This just very simply tells you the sort of bursting praise that comes from a heart that realizes, I have not earned the right to worship this God, but Jesus earned it for me. A heart that realizes this God in heaven owns everything. He is glorious and worthy of every ounce of worship that I can give him and more. Now, our hearts don't often want to burst and praise him like that, but that is the worship and the glory he is worthy of. So let's just, let's just contemplate then uh, the righteousness he's earned for us, the fact that he owns my body and your body and is Lord over all creation. What then is the kind of worship he is worthy of? Well, in these verses, it's worship with a lot of exclamation points. I'm reading in the ESV and I count one exclamation point in verse 7, uh, one in verse 9, another one in verse 10, question marks as well, a lot of commas. I only see two periods in the whole like multiple sentences there uh, because the kind of worship coming here is just bursting praise. Church, when we get back together, and we get to worship him again. Let's not worship with periods at the end of our sentences. Let's worship with exclamation points because that is what our God is worthy of. Amen.